Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to uh, the Gospel of Mark. All the way at the end. Mark 15. We'll be in verses 42, and we'll go all the way to um, verse 8 of chapter 16, as some of you probably go, oh man, I was hoping you'd tackle that. Any volunteers are willing to do that next time? So get some water real quick. Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 42. This is God's Word. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to to one another, Who will roll away the stone, stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you that, uh, for the Gospel of Mark, especially as we've walked through it this past, uh, over, over the course of a year. Um, thank you for what you have shown us about Jesus and how you have grown us in, in just our own um, vision of Christ, given us clarity. Um, and so, God, we pray that you continue to do that this morning as we uh, end this wonderful Gospel uh, book. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure all of us have had the experience of looking for something or looking for someone, depending. So typically you'll check those places where you, you, you typically find those certain things that you're looking for, the obvious places, maybe it's your keys, so you check your pocket or you check the place where you typically keep your keys or, or whatever, maybe they're in the door, that's happened before. Uh, then when you can't find the, that particular thing or that particular person, then that's when you start getting desperate. Maybe if it's a person, maybe a child, uh, that's when fear starts to set in. And so you start checking places you never thought you would have to check. And usually, at least for me, that's typically where I end up finding things. And I'm always left with that question of, how did those get there? Well, maybe you're here today, 
looking for something. I mean, this is a church, so I assume that the something that you're looking for is spiritual or supernatural at some level. I'm not sure what else you would be looking for at a church, but uh, maybe it's a deeper walk with Christ. Maybe it's comfort and challenge from God's Word. Maybe it's a community of brothers and sisters. Maybe it's good theology. Maybe it's answers to your questions about Christianity. And you know, I hope that you find all of those things today and in the days to come of this church's life. And in our text this morning, we we have a few people who are looking for something. But this something is way more important than your keys or a wallet or even a child that's missing. Mark tells us they are looking for the kingdom. And more specifically, they are looking for their king. Because Jesus is their king. But as we learned last week, Jesus is a different kind of king than we're used to, to reading about in history books. Because uh, he's, he's a mocked king. He's a crucified king. He's a, he's a dying king. Not really the picture of success you were asking around. So today we'll look at the text to see the complete and final picture of who Jesus is and how that changes us as a people. So we'll look at Jesus now as the buried king, so as a dead king, and then we'll look at Jesus as the risen king, alive. So first, the buried king. Chapter 1, page 1 of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, might as well, we're two weeks away, says this, Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. And this must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. And here's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. Jesus is dead to begin with. And as we'll see, there is no doubt whatever about his deadness. And this too must be distinctly understood. Because if we don't understand that Jesus actually died, nothing, nothing wonderful can come from the story Mark is going to relate to you now in this part of his gospel. So one of the things that stood out to me this week in, in this particular text is, is the details that are offered by Mark. So I said last week that Mark really doesn't... In, in, really none of the gospel writers really offer any intricate details into the crucifixion, into Jesus' death. But Mark does offer a number of details in Jesus' burial. He gives us names of eyewitnesses. He gives us rituals that are performed. And Joseph of Arimathea is the first mentioned. This is a man, he is, he's a respected member of the council of these religious elites. So he's part of this same group of scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law who have just murdered Jesus. 
So he's not in some special category of, of Jesus' believers. He is, he is right there with Jesus' murderers. So, but Mark makes sure that we, uh, that he, that he makes, he makes sure to tell us that he is not like the other religious leaders. He, he begins to set him apart. And he tells us this in verse 43. He says, he was one that was also looking for the kingdom. In fact, all four of the gospel writers vouch for Joseph as someone different. Matthew and John actually call him a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Luke says in, in a lot more detail that he was, quote, a good and righteous man, not consented to the council's decision and action against Jesus. And then Luke also states alongside Mark that Joseph was someone looking for the kingdom. So what we can conclude from the gospel writer's descriptions is that a disciple of Jesus is one who looks for the kingdom. Seems to be their criteria. Because the kingdom is where the king is found. Jesus himself tells us this at the very beginning of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The only way that Jesus can say the kingdom of God is at hand is because He's the King. And the King has come. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus says. So in every way, Joseph understood Jesus was different. He may not have had everything nailed down exactly right, but he understood that Jesus was different. So much so that he was willing to take the risk of assuming the burial rituals at his own expense. He, he gets everything ready for Jesus to be buried. But like Paul, Joseph had a lot to lose here. I mean, he was a high-ranking religious official. He had the power and the authority to put a man to death if he wanted to. Joseph had everything to lose. John's Gospel even tells us that Joseph had to ask for the body secretly. And the reason he asked secretly is because he fears the Jews. He knew that believing Jesus was who he said he was went against the grain of his current traditional culture completely. So why would he do this? Why would he risk his very life to just bury a dead man? Well, because in this not-so-simple gesture of burial, Joseph was professing belief in who Jesus was. Most who have been accused of treason during this particular time would usually have been left to rot on their cross and let the, the birds of prey come by and just pick at them for food. But Joseph, knowing Jewish law, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, knew that it prescribed that those hung should be taken down and buried by sundown. So Joseph knew this. But if Joseph understood that that was what was supposed to happen, even for someone who was a convicted criminal, uh, the Jewish leaders also knew that. 
But it doesn't seem that the other Jewish leaders had any intentions uh, of doing this, since Joseph was afraid to even inquire about it to them. So what we can see from that is there are two types of people here. You have one type of person who is looking for a king, or looking for the king, and then you have those who are not looking for the king. They don't care. Their life has moved on. So I have to ask you today, what, what, are, you, what are you looking for today? What are you looking for? Maybe, maybe you're looking for, for, for more money from your job to buy more things to make you feel happy and comfortable and satisfied. We're about to enter into the crazy Christmas season where that is a reality thrown at us. Maybe you're looking for the right person that will keep you from loneliness. And so you're going out of, out of your way to make that happen. Maybe you're looking for the right status that will make you feel desired. And, and that could be on your social media account or that could just be in person. You want that person to say that thing to you so that you can feel beautiful and accepted. Or maybe you're looking for that right word from someone that will affirm you whether that be at your job or uh, in your marriage or with your friends or f- your family members. Maybe you're looking for that politician to, to make everything great again. I was reminded of what C.S. Lewis said once. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Meaning, when we place our eyes on the one who is most important, especially when it doesn't make sense. Because this is what's happening right now with Joseph and these women and his disciples. It does not make sense. But when you place your eyes on the one who is most important, the things of this world begin to be brought into perspective. Or as the hymn says, the things of this earth will go grow strangely dim when we have our eyes fixed on Jesus the King. Because our perspective is shifted, isn't it? When we are looking for the King. And I told a friend, I ran into a friend of mine from, from a while back yesterday in Colombia, and we talked about this very topic that we said this is the beauty of Christianity. That even when we march through suffering and march through hard things, and and even when we walk through those joys, we have this perspective, we have this clarity of this reality that God, a God, would send His Son to die for us. And that brings brings everything that we are about in our lives into uh, a different perspective than the world. But even here it seems like the search should be called off, doesn't it? I mean, we're dealing with a dead man. Jesus is dead. And this is confirmed for us in a number of ways based on verses 45 through 47, if you want to just glance down there with me. Um, the, the centurion, is uh, his job is to confirm death. That is, that is his profession. He is, he is a professional at knowing when people have died. He knows what it looks like. He knows what it feels like. And so you have 
this man coming and saying, hey, I want, I want Jesus' body. And Pilate is surprised that Jesus had died so soon. Usually there's a bit more suffering that's involved, but Jesus is dead. He inquires with the professional, the centurion, to make sure this is correct. The centurion says yes. And you know, it was, it was, his, it was his duty to declare death. But if he were to declare death uh, wrongly, and Jesus happened to be alive, or whoever it was happened to be alive, the centurion would lose his life. So there was a lot riding on the centurion saying that Jesus was, was dead. So we know Jesus was dead. We have the centurion stamp of approval. We have Pilate's stamp of approval. And then we have Joseph, who takes him off the cross who uses his own money and goes and buys this shroud and, 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 and chases down a tomb where Jesus can be buried. So Joseph is handling the body, carrying him. He's, he's wrapping him in this linen shroud, which I can only imagine was, not, was, was a careful process. It wasn't something that you were just kind of like haphazardly doing. He was touching his entire body. And then he lays him in the tomb. And the stone is rolled in front. And then on top of that, you have Mark mentioned these, these, couple, these two Marys who are present. And they see him. They see Joseph lay Jesus in the tomb. And just as Charles Dickens wrote those lines about dead Marley, so that we could see how wonderful that story was, Mark writes these lines for us so that we too can see how wonderful our story is. And that wonderful news is found in the reality of our second point, in the risen king. So the fact that this part of the narrative of the greatest event in human history is being told from the perspective of women is pretty extraordinary. When you consider that a woman's testimony during this time was considered invalid, it doesn't matter what a woman saw during this time, even if it was she could be a key witness in a court of law, they would throw it out. So the Greek philosopher Celsus, who wrote against Christianity in the second century, he, he used this very argument to try to, to try to squelch this growing um, movement of Christians. And he wrote this, Christianity can't be true, because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. I bet you the ladies just fell at his feet, man. Like, true ladies man here. But thankfully, this is not the way Mark felt about these companions. And honestly, that's not the way the early church uh, ever thought about women. There's a book, it's called, it's got a long title, but it's a small book. It's called, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? So Professor Larry uh, Hurtado is the author of this book, and he, said, he notes that one of the distinct features of the early church was the visibility of women amongst its numbers. And Mark shows us this by including this same group of women that he mentions here in chapter 16 three times by name in chapter 15 and now in chapter 16. 
These were not just anonymous bystanders. These were not paid mourners. These were real people with real lives, with real names that you can go and talk to about this particular event. That's why Mark put their names there. So that you could go chase them down if you wanted confirmation of what just happened. So why is this important? Tim Keller uh, writes or notes this in his commentary uh, on this particular passage. And he says this, this is why it's important. That if Mark and the Christians were making this story up to get their movement off the ground, because that's what a lot of people believe what was happening was that this was propaganda, that the Gospels were propaganda, and that they were stories that the disciples were telling so that they could get their movement uh, off the ground. So if Mark and the Christians were making this story up to get their movement off the ground, they would have never written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' empty tomb. Never. If they wanted it to be accepted by the broader culture, women would not have been included first. That's a big reason we know it's true. So if they really wanted it to take root, a Hallmark movie ending would have been perfect. Maybe this is the opportunity where Peter and Jesus embrace and all of Israel bows down to Jesus as king and the snow falls and cheesy music plays and credits roll. And we all live happily ever after, right? But that isn't how it ends at all. Actually, it's one of those times where you get to the end of a book and you're left thinking, did I miss something? Should it be ending like it's ending here in verse 8? And this is one, one reason that some believe verses 9 through 20 were added to the gospel. And it's a reason, one of the reasons I believe that 9 through 20 were added and why I'm not going to delve into them uh, at this moment is because it ends so abruptly in verse 8. I don't know if you notice or not, but we don't see Jesus again in Mark's gospel after he dies. We don't see him. But actually, since Jesus has already predicted his resurrection appearances back in chapter 14, verse 28, the gospel actually is complete at verse 8. We can comfortably and confidently say that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8 because of what Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 28. That he will rise again. That he will meet his disciples again. So, the most important information that Mark wants us to hear comes out of the mouth of an angel in verses 5 through 7. Look there with me as I read that again for us. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So if you notice this angel, how he hits so many key parts of the gospel message here. He reminds him, Jesus has been crucified. He, is, he was dead. For sure he was dead. But he's been resurrected. 
He's risen. He's alive. And so then he gives them the commission to go and share the good news. Go and tell everyone that Jesus has risen, especially his disciples and especially Peter. And tell them the promise of their reunion with Jesus. So this is the beautiful picture of God's grace here. Jesus gives the disciples a promise in chapter 14, verse 28. Probably on the worst day of their lives. Because he knew they would need it right now at this very moment. So in 1428, after telling his friends that they would do the unthinkable and betray them, he tells them, if you remember, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. After you've betrayed me, after you've done the very worst thing that anybody could ever do against Jesus, I will rise from the dead and meet you in Galilee. That's incredible. Whatever it is you might be struggling with, whatever kind of shame that you might carry in to this place, it probably cannot match the shame that the disciples are feeling at this particular time. But it's the exact same message that Jesus has for you. That He will go before you. That He meets you. And whatever it is that you're struggling with or wrestling with. And here's the reason that the women don't find Jesus in the tomb. Here's the reason they're left talking to an angel instead of their risen king. Because Jesus is already fulfilling the promise to his disciples. He knows they are broken. He knows they are ashamed and depressed and confused and anxious. He knows they're doubting now whether Jesus was actually who he said he was. And he knows that they are wallowing in some sort of unbelief. They're really struggling. And yet he comes back to them. He doesn't wait for, the, for their eyes to be open any further. He doesn't wait for them to kind of have that aha moment. And finally, he's like, finally, guys, you get it. Here I am, I'm back. Jesus goes back to them before any of that happens. Because he wants them back. And he wants you back as well. He wants to make all things new again. He he wants to get us back to uh, where we were in the, the beginning chapters of Genesis. When all was perfect. Sin did not exist. So Jesus is calling us back to that. Because if Jesus really has risen, then it solidifies the answer to the question that we've been asking of Mark's gospel for the past year. Who is Jesus? And if he's risen, it means he really is the Son of God. It means he really is the true and perfect King who came to, the, to, who came to earth to die on the cross for you. And by trusting and believing in what He has done there, we are spared from eternal judgment. And we are ushered past the veil into God's presence forever. Meaning the only way the kingdom is found is in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, thank you again for the reminder of the gospel that reminds us that it is, that it is not about us, that it is not about anything that we, that we do or anything that we don't do or anything that we say or anything that we don't say, but that it is only about what, what you have done for us in sending your only begotten Son into the world so that we might be restored uh, to, in our relationship with you, that, that we might be brought back into relationship with you. And so, God, I pray for those of us who um, have been walking with Jesus for many years, that we would uh, be renewed in our understanding of the gospel today, that it would not be something that we um, just kind of hear and, and move on as we walk out these doors. Uh, God, I pray for, for those friends here who are just now believing that the gospel would, would go even deeper into their hearts today, that we, they would be reminded that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we pray all of those things in his name. Amen.